When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today is Transfer Market Insider and pundit extraordinaire Ian McGarry and renowned journalist Raphael Honigstein, author of Dash Reboot and Klopp Bring the Noise, the seminal account of Jurgen Klopp's ascent to his current role at Anfield. On today's Transfer Podcast. Sitting atop the Premier League after three seasons of his Merseyside project, we ask if it's now or never for Liverpool boss Jurgen Klopp in his quest for the club's first league title in 28 years. We look at Dortmund and assess how Lucien Favre has turned a 19-point Bundesliga deficit last season into a 7-point advantage this term, and if the black and yellows can hold on to the star men that have propelled them to such lofty heights. And we preview Manchester City v Chelsea with our combined 11. There's no better place to start given our guests with the subject of his last book, Jurgen Klopp. Rafa, it's neck and neck in the title race with Pep Guardiola and Man City. And uh, despite clear and obvious year-on-year progression of the squad at Liverpool, Klopp has yet to win a trophy. How do you feel he's coping with the immense strain he must be facing trying to bring that title back to Liverpool? Well, I think so far he's coping pretty well. I I would say it's even slightly surprising that he is this close to City. I didn't expect Liverpool to be able to challenge to that extent. I thought they'd be competitive, but I didn't expect them to lead the table uh, with uh, half the season gone or just a little bit more than that. So... I think he's doing fine. I think you have to differentiate between sort of the wider expectation of this Liverpool team who have almost kind of now raised the bar and put the pressure on themselves to win it and uh, the real fan base who seem to just enjoy themselves. And I don't think have that sense of um, it's all going to be dread and gloom if we don't win it this year. They, they feel the progress. They feel the excitement of, of being competitive again. And I don't think they would necessarily blame... Um, Klopp or the team if it if it wasn't to happen against what is you know the best the best Premier League team ever and certainly in terms of results from last season in Manchester City so the pressure is of course there and I think he will be more annoyed than he lets on with drawing the last uh, couple of games but at the same time I think you have to remember that um, Liverpool have come quite a long way uh, from being a team that were completely lost and didn't know where they were going to a team that can compete once again for the for the biggest trophies. And they should just try and remember that and put that in context and, and enjoy as much as they can uh, being able to to be in the conversation. I think that's an interesting point you, you make, Rafi, that about the core support at Liverpool. Um, over the course of the last, say, three months, as um, Liverpool's momentum gained and gained, the feeling I got was that those the people, uh, both media, social media, um, who were almost um, 
daring it. Liverpool's divine right to win their first title uh, in, I think, 29 years. And therefore, uh, it was just a case of a procession from now until the end of the season. Whereas the people who actually go to Anfield and travel away from home um, are enjoying the ride. They're enjoying the fact that their results mean not just something, but an awful lot. Every single point has an influence on how this season will turn out. And I don't think there's um, the same sense of, uh, uh, let's just say, a sort of self kind of entitlement that seems to come from some quarters with regards to Liverpool's title challenge. And I also think that um, when I think about other managers uh, who've been in this position in the last few years chasing a title against um, a side as powerful and as well, uh, um, as well as the quality of Manchester City, have not coped as well in terms of the way they've responded to adverse results or circumstances. Um, Jose Mourinho being the most obvious example, although his personality is something else. Um, can you experience, uh, Rafi, of, um, of Jürgen at Dortmund when winning titles? Was his demeanour very similar to the, the way he is now? I mean, some of the lines I um, smile at because I've heard them so many times. <laughs> this uh, the idea that uh, it's all about concentrating on the next game that they don't think ahead they only worry about themselves and of course this is not so much to the, for the benefit of the of the media and of the wider public but really I think this is him talking to his team all the time and you can just just picture himself saying exactly the same things in the dressing room this idea that there is just no point of thinking where you might be in April where you might be in May, how many points you still need to win because the next game in the Premier League, even if you are as consistent as Liverpool has been, is always really, really tricky to keep that win going. And it is, I was thinking about this the other day, I mean, it is sort of a slight uh, irony maybe of of fate that he finds himself um, for the second time up against sort of the combined powers of Bayern and Pep Guardiola who stand in his way. <laughs> they, ruined, uh, they ruined much of his life uh, at Dortmund, um, you know, in, in the combination, either uh, the both of them together or individually. Um, and it might, might come to pass again. Uh, and he might sort of think, you know, what do I have to do to just get away from, from Bayern and, and Pep? But at the same time, I think this Liverpool team are much better equipped in terms of the financial underpinnings, in terms of um, the sort of trajectory of where, where the club and the team are going on the whole than, than his Dortmund team to actually stay in and, uh, and be a factor in the long running. I think with Dortmund, it was always a case of upsetting the odds and being the underdogs and the, the, the empire was always going to struck back. Uh, with Liverpool, they are also underdogs, but the distance and the ability to make up that gap um, seemed to be much more sustainable, in my view. What was the dynamic between um, them in, in the Bundesliga, Rafi, between Pep and Jürgen, I mean? It was a pretty good one. It was very professional. They never really got into any arguments. Um, I think that Klopp admired uh, Pep and really was, along with everyone else in the Bundesliga, astounded at some of the st- stuff he did, some of the football that Bayern played. I mean, they, they reached completely new levels, even if they didn't win the Champions League. And with Guardiola, it was a bit harder to tell because he's, of course, super complimentary about absolutely everyone he plays. And he would sort of... Uh, amuse people by going on to ex- extensive, um, detailed 
analysis of Augsburg and Freiburg and just why they're so amazingly strong and so difficult to play against. And then Bayern would turn out and win them six, beat them six or seven nil. Um, but I think there is um, a professional uh, respect and, and mutual kind of admiration. And it never really um, got ugly or heated or in any way emotional between the two of them. They just understood, I think, their position in the wider um, scene of things. And when Guardiola got there, Bayern were on the up and Dortmund were on the way down, which really had not, not so much to do with, with Klopp, but just with the dynamic of his tenure of being there for five years already. You've touched on the fact, Rafi, that uh, Liverpool are underdogs. That said, Klopp, as you've painted him in your book, is an exceptionally driven character who, who's desperate to win. What do you think he'll see as an achievable target for this season, given the, posi- the fantastic position that they're currently in? Well, I think the, the, the two trophies that are involved with are achievable targets. I think this Liverpool is better than last year's Liverpool, who made it to the final and then shot themselves in the foot and got unlucky in many ways with Mo Salah. Um, it's going to be difficult in the Champions League because of the quality of the op- of the opponents. I think in the in the Premier League, they are ahead of their own expectations. Um, some Liverpool fans are saying to me, you know, when Klopp waited to buy Van Dijk, when Klopp waited for Allison, he was just putting sort of the final touches. Um, for the jigsaw together and he had to go with the best possible team and it was all kind of part of the master plan. I'm not sure I buy that 100%. Of course, they tried to strengthen as best as possible, but I don't think they realized uh, just how consistent they could be. And at the same time, that City actually gave them the opportunity to, to come in. It's only because of City's weakness and it almost sounds stupid to say it, to call it that if you look at the results, but their weakness relative to last year's um, unassailability, that they have this opportunity. And so far, they look as if they might be taking it. So I think domestically, they're ahead of schedule. Internationally, they are um, hugely improved in the context of the last five, six years or so when even making it to the Champions League was beyond them. So I think he'll be happy, but at the same time, he might think to himself, you know, with Man United coming back strongly, with one or two teams in the Premier League maybe improving next year, this might be now or never. Um, they might not ever talk about it. He might not ever admit to himself. But the opportunity, especially in the Premier League, is really there. And um, I think it'd be really good if they could seize it. Ian, you've predicted Liverpool, of course, for the Premier League title this year. Do you still feel that that's <clears throat> going to happen or is it squeaky bum time? Um, it's a bit early for squeaky bum time uh, in February, I'd say. Um, I think reading between the lines of, of um, what Pep's been saying uh, in the last 10 days. <clears throat> He's been pleasantly surprised by Liverpool drawing games after they've won and therefore the, the opportunity of a seven-point gap has been closed down. So uh, I think if you look at the two teams' schedules, that, that could be <clears throat> now a key. Uh, Manchester City have got Carabao Cup final. They're still in the FA Cup to obviously play Champions League as well. Um, I think at the last count over the next seven to ten weeks, City will play either four or five more games than Liverpool. Um, and I think that will give Liverpool an advantage in that there will be less um, opportunity for their players to sustain injuries. And we know they already have some, uh, which they're struggling with. Um, <clears throat> and of course, conversely, more um, opportunity for City to, um, to to feel that strain. So, uh 
it will be very interesting. I think squeaky bum time will come, you know, in the coming weeks rather than right now. It will be, I think, March, April time. <clears throat> Pep, um, as we've seen in the past, most notably um, in his final season at Real Madrid, when um, Jose Mourinho finally ground him uh, into a state of depression, uh, almost that uh, there is a dark side to him. Um, several players I've played from, I've spoken to, have said that you know they sometimes in the morning uh, they wouldn't know what they were going into. Uh, it would be happy Pep, and then if there was a double session, it could be happy Pep in the morning and dark Pep in the afternoon. So if Liverpool were to take advantage, as I said, of, of both the fixture list and um, regain the momentum which saw them spend most of December at the top of the table <clears throat> and much of January as well, then I think uh, that Liverpool still have the upper hand. Um, and what, what, what will be the most important factor now is mentality, I think, because you've got in Liverpool a team who are desperate to win the Premier League and you've got in Manchester City a team that are defending a championship. Um, Pep's always liked to lead from the front. He's, he's, he usually wins championships relatively early by Easter time. Uh, if he's still chasing Liverpool at that point, um, then it's a whole new uh, world for Pep Guardiola to have to compete in because um, he's used to gaining titles uh, leading from the front. So I think, yeah, squeaky bum time, no, at this moment in time. Yes, we should ask ourselves that same question in, in five or six weeks. Rafi, we are the Transfer Window podcast and you've touched on the fact that Klopp waited for some of his key men, Alisson Van Dijk. It was that strategy that Klopp employed at Dortmund as well. Was he very focused on singular targets or is this something that's come into the equation more at Liverpool? Oh no, this is this is a million miles away from what he had to uh, to deal with at, uh, at Dortmund. First of all, the, the finances weren't there to buy world record defenders and world record um, goalkeepers. They had to be much smarter. They had to buy guys like Kagawa and, uh, and Lewandowski you know, for a couple of million euros. Uh, guys had perhaps been under, undervalued or overlooked elsewhere. And the transfer um, policy at Dortmund was very much a collective function of the likes of Sven Mislintat and Michael Zork, um, Vatske, the CEO on the financial side, and Zork on the on the coaching side, they would of course identify targets together. As a coach, as you'd expect, he would have the final word, but he would rely on the scouting, on the recommendations, and on the financial abilities of his club to provide the best players that he could, and then he would try and concentrate on, on coaching them and making them better players and getting the most out of them. And I think now Liverpool is, is more of a mix. I think he's become very confident in the abilities of Mike Edwards um, after uh, Mohamed Salah, which really I think was a, a key moment in many ways because Klopp, Klopp, by his own admission, wasn't 100% sold on him, but then realised that um, the reason why Edwards pushed so much for him and it was so adamant that this guy is going to make a huge improvement was proven true. And since then, I think he's been much more able to take a, a more backseat role, if you will, and just rely on the expertise of the people who scout and look at players all the time. The idea that a manager is really across um, European football and knows you know, who is at any given moment the best goalkeeper in any division or the best centre-back is just no longer, I think, a, a, a workable setup um, because the demands on the coaching are too much. So 
to have a functioning setup with people below you that can deliver solutions is one of the key reasons that Liverpool have been able to to progress. They are no longer reliant on um, picking up players that might work out or might not work out. They can now add one or two players every season that make a big difference. And of course, um, this is also a function of Klopp doing well with players he has, because if it wasn't for him developing the likes of Trent Alexander-Arnold or Robertson, or even getting the most out of the likes of Henderson and Wijnaldum, people already there, Liverpool wouldn't be in a position where they can only concentrate on one or two players every year. They'd have to make much more whole changes and be in a much more difficult spot, a little bit like Arsenal at the moment, a little bit like Man United at the moment. So it works together, this idea that you can focus on one or two signings because your more ordinary signings financially also work out because of the coaching. Well, it's been an incredible season for Lucien Favre and his Dortmund charges. They sit atop the Bundesliga table, seven points ahead of Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bayern Munich. For listeners that are used to seeing Bayern run away with the German title, Rafa, can you explain how Dortmund have overtaken their rivals, especially given they finished last season a full 19 points behind? Well, last season was a car crash for Dortmund. They barely scraped into the Champions League. They had to change managers twice. Uh, neither of them really worked out. Peter Stöger, Peter Bosch, uh, both a little bit out of their depth in different ways. And now what they have done, I think, is A, they have learned the lesson on the transfer side. They brought in players that really made a big difference in terms of personality, in terms of their experience. Um, also, their playing style to provide a bit more steel uh, through the middle. Axel Witzel has been a runaway success. Roberto Martinez told, uh, called him the best transfer in the world this season. And I think you'd have to kind of agree, at least as far as the impact that he's had at his own team, Dortmund, they're a completely transformed side. And Thomas Delaney as well from Werder Bremen, the Danish international. The two of them controlling the midfield, providing the platform for all these young, super exciting players that Dortmund have to shine and to do their thing. And um, you add to that Lucien Favre, a guy who has shown at every single club that he can improve players, that he can get teams to play with a clear identity, um, to perform maybe above their own means in a way, and to get results consistently. So all these things have happened. And at the same time, a little bit like Manchester City, but in a more um, dramatic fashion, Bayern have gone down from their own standards, have become more ordinary. They're heading for their worst season since 2010-11 when Van Gaal left. Uh, and Dortmund, with their consistency, have taken full advantage. So those two things always had to happen at the same time. It was an um, outside chance that they would coincide, but it has happened, and now it's really their title to lose. Rafi, what would happen if they, if they go on and win the title? Can, can you see that team being allowed to stay together, or will the best players be picked off as it has happened in the past? Dortmund's strategy is to sell at least one big player a year. They've already sold that big player, if you will, in Christian Pulisic, who's leaving in the summer. So financially, I think that they won't be under pressure to necessarily cash in on another player. At the same time, they're open about the fact that with their organic um, revenue coming in at about 350 million euros, the only way to get to the magic 500 million euro mark, at least that's sort of the figure that most people in European football talk about, when it comes to being really competitive, is to make one or two really high um, sales. And um, I think there is still a chance that another big player might leave. But in a way, that is built into the system. 
Um, Dortmund have always found ways to replace these guys and stay competitive. Their own identity, their own definition is not necessarily um, geared towards having to be the best team in Germany because the, the distance in, in revenue is still too large. But they want to be competitive and they want to be competitive in the Champions League. So as long as they're within these parameters, they themselves feel that they are on the right pathway. So even if another big player will leave, I think they'd be happy with that. And the good news is that in Jaden Sancho, they have now a guy who um, I think will stay next season, but then in the season uh, prior to that, uh, sorry, in the season after that, will probably command the price tag north of 100 million euros, which again sort of fuels um, Dortmund's progress going forward. So they've done enough to keep this thing going. And I think in Favre, they have the right guy who will keep overachieving and keep them competitive on the playing field as well. So young players um, going to Germany is a subject we've discussed on the podcast in the last few weeks, Rafi, and <clears throat> obviously Jaden Sancho's one. Um, what, what's the latest on Callum Hudson-Odoi? Because obviously Chelsea refused to allow him to leave in January for Bayern. Do you see that one happening in the, in, in the summer window? Well, it comes down to really Chelsea's um, steadfastness to to resist the inevitable. I don't think that there is a real chance that he might change his mind. And certainly uh, at Bayern, they feel that the commitment is strong enough from him and um, the people around him that he is definitely going to come. Of course, until the transfer deal is, is has gone through, Chelsea will retain uh, some optimism that his mind can be changed, maybe through game time, maybe through an improved offer, etc. But it looks as if um, he has made up his mind and will make the move. And now it's done, then it's down to Chelsea. Will they, take, will they take the hit? Will they say, you know what, we'll just make an example of him in many ways and not let him leave? But then seeing him run down his contract doesn't really do much for the bank balance. They're under no pressure to sell. They can, um, they can see if they can extract maximum value from Bayern. But at the same time, I think they cannot probably just sit back and see a valuable asset uh, a leave for, for no money at all because the squad will need continued investment. So I think inevitably that this is going to work out with, with a deal in the summer, maybe even decided fairly early um, this season. But Bayern didn't do themselves any favours by being so public and so bullish about this. I think that's kind of put, put a span in the works, getting uh, Marina's... Um, nose out of joint ever so slightly and they might have to make up for that by paying a little bit over the odds uh, unless uh, you know in in contrast to what would have happened if they'd been a bit more discreet about the whole thing. Ian you look at that Bayern squad and even a, a layman who doesn't watch a lot of German football can see that there are a number of players there heading towards their the end of their career and a rebuild is almost certainly on the cards I've been astonished, and it'd be interesting to hear Rafi's view on this, but every season when I see um, Robin and Ribery sign new contracts, <clears throat> it's almost like, you know, you can set your watch by it. Uh, and every season I think to myself, how long can this go on? Because even though these guys have had exceptional careers and have done exceptional things with Bayern Munich, um, they cannot possibly physically keep playing at the same level. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe as interesting for Bayern Munich this summer will be the managerial situation because clearly that's um, been a little bit chaotic since, since Guardiola left as well. Um, 
Any thoughts, Rafi, on, uh, on whether or not Bayern will change manager? Well, they would like to stick with Tim. They would like to see him succeed. But I think the jury is still very much out. And that includes the jury that is the important one, which is sits upstairs at Sevener Straße and mm. has to figure out whether he is the long-term solution. I think a lot for him will come down to how the Liverpool tie works out. Because if Bayern lose quite heavily and lose in a fashion that sort of is a little bit embarrassing and shows him up tactically, then I think it'd be very, very difficult for both the dressing room and the hierarchy to convince themselves that this thing can still be rectified. Domestically, they're almost at the point where they're willing to concede, which in itself is very unusual for Bayern. Usually, if you don't win the league at Bayern, that is in itself a reason for dismissal. But they sort of said, okay, we might have made one or two mistakes in the transfer market. We might have um, been a little bit too slow to freshen up the squad. We'll give you that, Niko Kovac. But if they now... Um, lose really badly in the in the Champions League and the season is over with the exception of the Cup uh, in March, I think it'd be very, very difficult. So what might save him is the same thing that has saved other coaches over the last uh, 18 months or so, which is a real lack of alternatives. Um, if there were one or two big names readily available, I think Bayern might be much um, quicker to pull the trigger but he got the job in the first place because those alternatives weren't available or in Thomas Tuchel went elsewhere. So I don't think necessarily that um, Bayern have a good idea what could happen if, if they decide that he's no longer the right man. The other difficulty there, Rafi, is they'll be contending with Real Madrid for that golden coach. Correct. Uh, who's going who's gonna to return um, what you know, the country's largest club to its former glory. In fact, it might even be more than that with... Uh, <clears throat> with the Solskjaer's future still not absolutely cemented and also Marissa Sarri putting noses out of joint at Chelsea as well so we could be in for a bit of a kind of weird old summer with um, huge clubs all tracking maybe one or two coaches because the uh, the best ones are already assigned and uh, signed up and, and not willing to move. Yeah, that's absolutely right and, and Bayern did look, uh, because you brought up uh, Madrid and Man United, Bayern did look at Maurizio Pochettino before they went after Niko Kovac, but I don't think there was a realistic possibility of, of making him uh, take the job. But it was interesting that when they looked at him, they were a little bit, at least that's what I heard, a little bit sort of taken aback by the amount of play, sorry, the amount of staff that he has. And uh, Bayern are always a club that are very, very conscious um, to protect their own identity, as it were. And I think they're reluctant to offer the coach, whoever it is, um, the opportunity to kind of surround themselves with 10 or 15 of his own staff. Um, I'm not saying that would necessarily happen with whoever comes in after Kovac, but most of these super coaches, if we can call them them, of course, almost make it part of their uh, working conditions that they have all these guys around them. And uh, as much as a success Guardiola was, I think that culture of working created inherently a a conflict with the more uh, continuous and sort of more identity, family-driven culture at Bayern, if you will. And that is just another complications for them, compl- level of complication for them when it comes to uh, choosing a successor for Kovac whenever that might, might be necessary. Okay, well, now it's time for our legendary quickfire round. And today what we're going to do is give you a Manchester City and Chelsea combined eleven. Okay, Rafa, the way we do this is we're going to play a 4-2-3-1 formation. We're going to start with a goalie. We're going to give you the opportunity to start us off. 
Well, I think this is a clear choice uh, here. I think Edison's ability, both on the line and uh, outside the box, make him the best, uh, one of the best, if not the best guy in the Premier League right now. So he'll have to start for me. Ian, left back? Um, I would say Marcus Alonso. Um, I think that um, Pep himself would admit that he has problems uh, both full-backs, both through injuries um, and... I think he's lost faith with with a couple of his fullbacks as well. I also think that Marcus Alonso in the last um, season and a half has probably been the best left back in the Premier League. So um, I would go with Marcus Alonso. Okay, um, we're going to go to centre back now, Rafi. I think Emery uh, Laporte has to be the number one choice here. Um, he is, uh, along with Van Dijk, the most consistent centre back, and I think and possibly still underrated. Uh, walk straight into the team for me. Okay, Ian, so we've got the left-sided centre-back. Who are we going to play on the right? Um, I would go with Anthony Rudiger, actually. I think he's been having a, an exceptional season. Um, he's, he's he's not been probably best-supported centre-back, given uh, some of Chelsea's defending, but I think he himself has been very consistent. Uh, and I think uh, of the, 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 the ones available, I'm not convinced by... Uh, the rest of um, Manchester City centre-back selections, um, as we've seen, Stones, Otamendi have been um, rotated recently for different reasons. So I think um, Rudiger gives you a much better anchor there. Rafi, have you been impressed with Rudiger? Yes, I've been impressed with him. I still think he needs to learn. He's, sometimes I think his decision-making is a little bit off and maybe would have to allow for the fact that David Lewis doesn't always make it easy, I think, to play, <laughs> to play that Chelsea defence. But, uh, yeah, I think he's, he's good. And I think he will, will only learn under, under Maurizio Sarri and become a much better centre-back. So I think centre-backs, a little bit like centre-forwards, might take a little bit longer sort of to come fully into their, into their prime because so much is, is that based on, on experience and knowing how to do the right thing sort of almost intuitively on the pitch. Well, give us a right back as well while you're there. Well, I think Kyle Walker, despite having a bit of a drop-off since, uh, since the World Cup, still is the, the best um, wide player in Manchester City squad and, for me, also the best uh, right-sided player in a combined eleven. His energy, um, his ability to move into midfield, to be very, very strong in the tackle defensively. There, there's loads of things, I think, in his favour, even when he's a little bit off his very best. Okay, Ian, uh, I'm the manager here, so I want a ball winner now. Okay. Centre midfield. Fernandinho's got, got to be your man. Um, he doesn't just win the ball, he, he wins the tackle. As uh, Even if Pep claims that the tackles are perfectly fair and not cynical, he's, Fernandinho, I think, still uh, is outstanding in that position. And obviously with the controversy surrounding the um, positioning of N'Golo Conte as opposed to Jorginho, um, Fernandinho definitely gives us the ball winning and he... Uh, He's the man who takes uh, prime position in, in the Manchester City team. And of course, he can play two positions at once. All, so... the, best, all the best players can, <laughs> Johnny. <laughs> uh, Rafi, who else is going to join him in midfield? Well, take your pick from Manchester City. I mean, it's hard. You could make two 11s from them uh, easily. But if fully fit, and he's getting back to fully fitness... I think Kevin De Bruyne walks into any any midfield in the world. I I love this guy. He's your modern number eight. Can play anywhere, everything does does everything at the same time, and is uh, is as complete a midfielder as you'll find in the Premier League anywhere else. So 
uh, he has to be in any team that I will pick. There's been a lot of discussion on the podcast about Jorginho, Rafi. What do you make of his introduction to the Premier League? I, I've been impressed with Jorginho. I think his start is, has been really, really strong. I think now perhaps fatigue is coming into it. I think it's difficult for players to play in the Premier League for the very first time without, without a break. I think that is a, a huge mental um, challenge and a drain on, on mental and physical resources. And I think he's been left a little bit alone in this role where you know, he basically has to start every single um, attack and teams have become wise to that. And when they put one or two guys on him, he is not the most um, dynamic of, of players on the ball. He can't really necessarily step away from them. So they've, they've found ways to negate him. But I really like him as a player. I just, I'm just not entirely sure that Sarri does him any favours by putting that much pressure on him and making him the one guy that has to, you know, that has to be the pivot for everything that Chelsea do. I think he'd be much happier with a similar type of player closer to him. Yeah, he's good, but not good enough to make this 11. Right, Ian, left wing. Well, I think this is going to be the, the, the sort of biggest part of this debate, Johnny. Um, I think the front three attacking midfielders for both uh, Chelsea and City are, ex- are outstanding candidates as well. as so obviously uh, you could throw Liverpool in there, although thankfully that's not the team we're debating today. So um, on the basis um, of my own personal um, presence for number 10, which of course Rafi will be making that choice, so I'm going to make it difficult for him and put Aidan Hazard on the left of this team because quite simply you couldn't leave him out. Um, he's possibly, in, well, he's definitely in the top three players in the Premier League um, at this moment in time and uh, will always create and score goals. And so, yeah, he's, I put him on the left in order to facilitate the uh, selection of other players elsewhere. Yeah, Rafi, I'm going to give you the honour of choosing the number 10. Who's going to dominate play from the attacking midfield position? I think David Silva. Um, has to Thank be you, there. Rafi. <laughs> <laughs> We're in agreement there. Yeah, I think he has to. He has to be there. Um, the the guy does so many good things so many times that you're almost numb to it, and that many in many ways is this problem. You don't appreciate just how good he is anymore because you see him do the stuff every single week, and it's not necessarily the flashy stuff. He sometimes plays in deeper positions. But City would not be able to play their game without David Silva having been uh, such a runaway success before Guardiola, but especially since Guardiola has arrived. So he is um, he's definitely in that position for me. Yeah, what a player he is. Ian, right wing? Uh, I'm going to go for Ryan Sterling. Um, I think that the pace aspect of his game is almost... Um, uh, unique in the Premier League in terms of the explosive burst, but also he can he can go up a gear once he's already running, which few players can do. Um, he would have some a, li- a little bit of competition, I think, be- because William and Pedro have both played very well in that position for Chelsea. But um, Sterling gives you, as I said, not just the pace, but the the final ball and the goal threat as well. So I think uh, a front three of Sterling, Silva and Hazard would be pretty hard to uh, to overcome. And the striker, Rafi? Well, I don't think there's any <laughs> any debate here, is there? I mean, Chelsea don't really have strikers. Um, okay. <laughs> Gonzalo Higuain uh, might, might, might be the solution that they've been looking for. And I think um, uh, I'm not being entirely fair to 
to him and to to his teammates there. But of course, Sergio Aguero is on a completely different level, uh, on a different planet even to compared to what Chelsea have at the moment. So uh, there is, I don't think, any two ways about this one. Okay, so our lineup is Ederson in goal, Alonso, Laporte, Rudiger, and Walker in defence, with Fernandinho and De Bruyne in the heart of the midfield. Ahead of them, we have Hazard on the left, Silva at number 10, Sterling on the right, and Aguero up front. Any names that might be a little bit miffed not to get in there, guys? The one that jumps out to me is N'Golo Kante. Yeah, but I mean, that is the true Johnny, but as I said, he's being played out of position right now, and, you know, I think if we're doing it on current. Um, team formations and selections then I think De Bruyne and Fernandinho was fair enough um, mm. it's interesting um, I always like to look back over and there's only three Chelsea players in that lineup. so um, uh, I think that maybe gives you uh, a segue to ask Rafi and I who we think might win the game on Sunday yes after, absolutely uh, having, having chosen seven Manchester City players well, I mean, City are, of course, huge favourites at home. But I've had a sneaky suspicion about this game for quite a while that Chelsea will not be beaten. I don't think they're quite good enough to to upset Manchester City uh, at the Etihad. But I see, I see them actually coming away with a draw. I don't know if that is allowed as an answer, but I, I've got a feeling that um, Chelsea might get something from this game. Well, I don't disagree with you, Rafi. Chelsea have actually put up some very good performances away from home this season. Um, in this instance, one of the most interesting factors will be, of course, that roles are reversed in that Liverpool are playing on Saturday uh, and then Manchester City at 4pm on Sunday. So if Liverpool beat Bournemouth, then the pressure will then return to Manchester City to obviously take points against a very difficult opponent. For that reason, I think they'll be a little bit more nervous playing Chelsea than they might necessarily have been otherwise, but still fancy City to sneak it by one goal. Okay, terrific. Well, get your bets on, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I would not advise that to any of our listeners. <laughs> Based on our uh, past qualities in these uh, departments, probably not. All that's left to say is thank you to our guest, Rafi Honigstein. Um, before you go, Rafi, can you tell us a little bit about your book, um, Clop Bring the Noise? I'm actually listening to it on Audible at the moment. Uh, it's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm happy to hear that you're enjoying it. It is a book on, on Jürgen Klopp's life, but it tries to not to be chronological, but actually to sort of explore different stations, different um, scenarios in his career and see how they kind of almost repeat themselves a little bit across uh, his work at Dortmund, Mainz and, and Liverpool. And I think especially for Liverpool fans, it might be quite encouraging because in his third full season, both at Mainz and at Dortmund, he's done things that were probably seen as a little bit beyond the both these clubs. Mainz got promoted for the first time in history. Dortmund won the title with the youngest team in the Bundesliga. So if that can re- that pattern can be repeated and three is indeed the magic number, then you might have a, a good book to um, give you an idea why that's happened. It's essential reading, folks. We're going to be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs and we will herald the return of one Duncan Castles. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. We have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to me, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Ian is at Garbo SG. And Rafa, your Twitter account? It's Honigstein. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening. <laughs>